The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 42 I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's good, Podcastville? Happy generic time of day to you. You have found the Bystander Podcast. I'm your host, Tiny Tim. Big shout out to Blue Canary for all your support and Sound Reaper Graphics in the pavilion. Today we're talking all things Puget Puget Sound water. I have two guests with me today. The first one I'd like to introduce to you is Troy. He's a charter fisherman here on the island. How you doing, Troy? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, Tim, I I take people out uh, in Puget Sound and surrounding area for uh, fly fishing trips for sea run cutthroat mainly uh we run into some salmon here and there but mainly sea run cutthroat fly fishing off the beaches all around puget sound and how long you been doing that oh gosh probably close to 25 years now Real sounds close awesome to yeah yeah it's a good time it's um, also it seems like it's long overdue for you to take me and the kid out <laughs> exactly <laughs> Also, I have Betsy from the Puget Sound Restoration Fund. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Can I get that mic a little closer to you, Betsy? How's that sound? <clears throat> sorry, sorry to be so direct and stick that in That's your face. That's okay. Um, I've been curious about Puget Sound Restoration Fund and what you guys do on, on the waters around Bainbridge Island in Seattle. And um, I was wondering if you could give a quick overview of what your organization does. 
Yes, we are trying to rebuild species and habitats that are really important to the health of the marine system um, and that have supported humans here for thousands of years. And we definitely work on projects around Bainbridge, sort of in Liberty Bay, um, up near Indianola, but we also have projects that extend throughout Puget Sound, up in the San Juan Islands, down in South Sound, in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So we have different projects in different places. And about how many people are in your organization? About 18 or so. And um, is and it's a nonprofit that's fully funded by who or mm. many people? Yeah, it's a nonprofit funded by many people. Um, we have we work in partnership with with uh, government agencies, with foundations, with tribes. Um, we have a whole bunch of individual contributors and many, many different partners. And what's your direct role with the restoration fund? I'm the executive director. Oh, you're a big shot, huh? Well, no. <laughs> I'm a small shot. Small shot. Um, well, I have a million questions, and I brought Troy in here because he's on the water on a constant basis and uh, probably know, has a few questions himself. Um, first off and foremost that comes to my mind is we're a bit of a tourist island, and we have a ferry system that comes over about – every 40 minutes and there's multiple moorage and boats and liverboards, people who live on, on boats in uh, a bay called Eagle Harbor out here. Adjacent to it is um, a super fun site where there used to be a creosote plant and that's been worked on for about 30 years. And I was just wondering between the creosote and the ferry and the gas dumpage and oh, Right around there at Wing Point 2 is a, a sewage plant that has uh, broken a few times. I was wondering what kind of damage as humans are we doing to that particular area of the sound and uh, here on Bainbridge Island with the creosote, the, the gasoline, the sewage, stuff like that all in a concentrated area. Well, I don't know that I can speak to the specific damage, but in that area and in Eagle Harbor, there are certainly a lot more nutrients these days, and that affects the growth of eelgrass. Um, there used to be a bull kelp bed at the mouth of Eagle Harbor that is not there any longer. It disappeared mm -hmm. around 2015, um, but bull kelp beds throughout Central Sound have also declined, um, and also in South Sound. So that that particular bed at the mouth of Eagle Harbor is not the only one. So we used to have many kelp beds around Bainbridge Island. Um, so there, there's a combination of, of impacts and stressors um, that have definitely contributed to the declines of various species. Um, but there are also still some species, native species, that are, that are, that are still resilient and still present um, in historic places where they existed. And, um, and these are really important for the fish populations that, that Troy and his, and his group of, of, of people are, are trying to find. So some really foundational parts of Puget Sound um, that are still doing well in some places and that can be rebuilt in many places. Yeah, when I first moved here, um, at low tide, Wing Point has a spit, basically. And you could go out there and uh, cast your buzz bombs and uh, catch some salmon out there. Also, I noticed at low tide, it looked like the 
clams that were on steroids. They're so big compared to other beaches around the island. And I was wondering if that had anything to do with the toxicity of that water. I know that you cannot eat shellfish out of, out of that section and a couple other sections around and on Bainbridge Island. But I was wondering, um, does the crabs have a filtration process that saves them? No. They're, yeah, they're not filter feeders, so they're scavengers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're eating lots of things on the bottom. And so they're just as dangerous heads. as the clams to eat? Well, I think that um, certainly at the mouth of Eagle Harbor or in Eagle Harbor, there are places where it's not safe to eat clams, but there are lots of places around the island where it is safe to, le- to eat clams. So we have a community shellfish farm on the Bloedel Reserve tidelands, for instance. And so people can go and help us plant oyster seed and harvest oyster seed. And there are people who can grow clams and oysters in their shellfish gardens in various places where the where the water is clean and fast mm-hmm. so um so we need more tide activity to uh, make the shellfish viable they um well there's tide activity there's good food nutrients in the water clean clean water so if you think of rich passage that's a very fast uh, moving Mm-hmm. pass as is agate pass um, when you get to the heads of inlets water slow down and it's a different situation but those two can be good places for oysters it just sort of depends on the surrounding activity the level of development the historic legacy activities in those places specifically wing point eagle harbor i still shouldn't eat the crab that's my favorite food uh, yeah I love crab, and I catch crab, too, up in Port Madison Bay. And I've never tried to catch crab near the mouth of Eagle Harbor, but I imagine along Yomalt moving north, there are probably some pretty good crab grounds there. Okay. Um, Troy, you got any quick questions here? Um, You know, as far as the crab go, I crab quite a bit and shrimp. Um, yeah, for, you for, did well last year in shrimp yeah. season, if I recall. For, for the four-hour opener. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you don't get much time out there to soak your pots. But uh, um, it's interesting when you bring up uh, the, uh, the um, bays and, and whatnot. There are some, which kind of goes back to maybe to part of your original point, uh, just to the south of Eagle Harbor is Blakely. And that seems so clean and fresh and and, and good. And I've, I've actually clammed a little and crabbed a little bit down there. And you're so close, but yet it's um, completely different when you go down there. It's more intact. It just it seems it to just ebb feels and, cleaner. Ebb and flow a little bit more. It has more drastic <laughs> yeah, tide change. Might, I think it might. Yeah, it's a deeper a deeper harbor too. Mm. Didn't we filled in Blakely? Didn't we quite a bit with sand and. Well, there was a big shipbuilding operation there over 100 years ago. Oh, right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I know we're kind of in different positions here, but try to talk to the audience on the microphone so we can hear you loud and proud. Um, Tell me about the work that you do to uh, mitigate the the, the acid and the toxins and stuff um, in the Puget Sound. I I know kelp is a a great diffuser of that. I have a friend who in Ketchikan, Alaska, who's growing kelp, you know, uh, um, 
not agriculture, but hydroculture. What's the correct word for it? Hydroponics. No, it's in the, it's in the Aquaculture. water. Aquaculture. Aquaculture. There Got we it. go. And he has acres and acres of kelp and it grows up to 15 feet a day. And if that's the case that we can actually grow it like a garden, why can't we replenish those kelp beds that you speak of that just vanished? Well, it's a really tricky thing to figure out to develop a kelp restoration practice. And there are people in many parts of the world who are trying to do that, and Mm -hmm. they're testing out different things. Um, In Southern California, what they're doing to restore kelp beds is destroy urchin barrens, huge, you know, conglomerations of urchins that eat down the kelp. And um, we don't have that particular issue here in Puget Sound, but we have other things that have affected the health of kelp beds. So, for instance, warming seawater temperature or lots of nutrients in the water that fuel plankton, and plankton can outcompete larger kelps for nutrients. Um, So there are also places where the, the rock on which the bull kelp, the canopy kelp, attaches, that can get covered by sediment, smaller sediments, so there's no longer an attachment point for kelp. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be water quality problems, so a whole bunch of different things can contribute to declines of kelp, but warming seawater temperatures is probably one of the, the, the bigger stressors. And so if you think about Puget Sound, a map of Puget Sound, those places in central Puget Sound and in south Puget Sound that are farther away from the ocean, farther away from big Strait of Juan de Fuca with that cold ocean water coming in, they're affected by those warmer um, seawater temperatures and other impacts. But in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and in parts of the San Juan Islands, bull kelp beds are still doing really well, um, and there have not been appreciable declines. So it kind of depends on where you're looking, and and there are things that we're trying to do to rebuild them, um, and that is sort of bolstering the seed supply. So growing a kelp bed throughout a season so that it produces on its blades lots of reproductive material that then rains down and hopefully kickstarts a self-sustaining bed. So that's the thing that we're working on with kelp, with with many tribes in partnership with the Suquamish tribe, um, in the South Sound in partnership with the, with the Squaxin Island tribe, because kelp beds are really important for fish. They're just one of those foundational parts of the ecosystem, that carbon engine that's turning car- mm-hmm. CO2 into useful carbon that feeds the food web. Uh, a couple of questions that come to mind, um, one about the seeds. but I was wondering if you could just run a rope or a cable at the bottom of the sound there and attach the kelp because I would think the further down you get in the water, the colder it would be as well. What have you tried that? And has the restoration fund actually tried to replace those kelp beds in any other fashion other than seeding? Well, that's putting a line down on the bottom that's anchored. That's exactly what we're doing off of point Jefferson. So we're using an aquaculture technique. Okay having a line, a cultivation line in the water, and then we're spooling the seeded kelp along that line. So we're growing it from the bottom. But in terms of temperature, those lower, that benthic area is colder typically than the surface waters. Mm -hmm. But with bull kelp, bull kelp is reaching all the way towards the surface. And it's on the surface that the blades develop 
that have the reproductive material in it. So if oh, so you it's have not warming, the bulb. That it's was not, my question. It's not the bulb. It's the blades coming off the bulb. And so if you've got super warm temperatures up at surface, that's that's where the bull kelp is growing resplendently with its blades and with all of its reproductive material. So it's going to be affected by temperatures that are over 17 degrees centigrade. So how do you collect those seeds? What we do is if um, if you've ever sort of looked at the blades of a kelp plant, a kelp, there are dark patches that grow on that long, big blade. Mm -hmm. And those dark patches actually have spores in them. And what happens during the season is they're very heavy with those spores and they drop out of the blade and they, they're negatively buoyant and they go down to the bottom, which is where they release their spores. And then those spores go through a life cycle over a period of time. How is one negative buoyancy how does that happen you know i'm not actually i don't not mother earth no i'm not (laughs) i'm not but it's heavy with spores and it goes down that's crazy yeah it is crazy i'd love to see that in time lapse photography and stuff yeah do you film a lot of stuff that you do I personally don't, but yes, we have scientific divers in the water. They're filming. We've got a bunch of great videos on our website, um, films that other people have taken. One was just released on Seattle Channel, I think, earlier this week or last week. So, yes, a lot of filming because these are beautiful species, and, and bull kelp forests are full of fish and invertebrates and so we're definitely capturing a lot of that on film we're filming a lot of the abalone recovery work that we're doing as well and abalone Um, is like sea urchins uh, another variation of shellfish abalone are snails they're marine snails and they really help to maintain the health of a kelp forest because they're grazing they're munching um on all of the different algae on the rocks and they're clearing that for settlement by other other kelps by by bull kelp and so they're 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 grazers they're beautiful you don't find them in this part of puget sound but but um they're still there in the strait of juan de fuca and we're working to rebuild their populations in the san juans because they became functionally extinct as a result of over harvest and poaching and so the fishery the sport fishery was closed in 1994 so we're producing abalone in our hatchery. We're outplanting them on restoration sites. We're trying to rebuild those breeding densities so that males and females are close enough in proximity to actually reproduce effectively. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Troy, when you take out your charters, um, what kind of issues have you come across in the 25 years, like, what is the most dramatic change that you've seen out on the water? Um, you know, I, I probably just the over the overall number of salmon that um, um, have not made it back, especially in the last half decade. Um, uh, lack of fish. Um, you know, something something I saw, it was probably like five years ago, too. I was going to bring this up. Um, and maybe you, you can answer this for me. It was, um, I fish in uh, Hood Canal quite a bit. 
as well as around Bainbridge Island and, and, and uh, area. Um, cutthroat love estuaries and everything that goes with estuaries. But um, I think it's like five years ago, one, one thing that really shocked me was um, the starfish started to melt as far as wow. there was no other way to say it. They just, I haven't they, even they, thought about starfish. I used to see them all day, every yeah, day. Yeah. They were, they, they were, they were in my mind. Yeah. Um, big orange and purple starfish. Beautiful. Uh, and, and just in the last five years, maybe, maybe longer, but that's one thing that visibly that I've seen, um, uh, it just kind of disappeared, which was, I, you're totally right. I can't, I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know what happened. It, uh, warm temperatures or more acidity in the water or something like that, I'm sure. But uh, I thought starfish liked the heat because they, they would be like half out of the water sometimes on, on the pier. Um, that the, more, more, more probably on low tide, they're, yeah. they're showing themselves. Yeah. Well, I know I accidentally killed one in my crab trap. Hmm. <laughs> it mm-hmm. sucked down my bait hook and it had like 16 <laughs> legs and yeah. wasn't yeah. letting go. And yeah. I was just like, this is not the way for you. Yeah, right. there there was a sea star wasting disease um, that the occurred. There was a sea star wasting disease that occurred, and it was um, partly in association with this big warm water blob that you might remember from 2014, um, when seawater temperatures were really high, okay. and and so this particular disease was just more prevalent during those warmer temperatures. So it definitely took down a lot of the sea star population. And sea stars prey on urchins and keep the urchin population in control. So it caused a whole bunch of cascading effects when you lost that 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 sea star population. And so um, one of a, a particular sea star called the sunflower sea star, which might be that one that you're talking about with the many arms, um, that particular sea star is, um, I think it's being considered for endangered species listing. Oh. Great. And no one is the police going after me. through. <laughs> no, <laughs> but 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 they're going through. Noah's going through a long study to determine whether or not it's threatened or should be added to the list um, because the population is not coming back as quickly as as one would hope. It's kind of weird about populations here on Bainbridge Island. You know, we had the disappearance of raccoons for a couple of years. We had insane amount of rabbits one year and then we didn't see them until this last year again um the deer population used to be herds and now it seems like it's mother and it's children you know and you barely see any um very mature males on the island and such um, so it kind of goes in waves and uh, hope the starfish come back because they're beautiful creatures yeah mm-hmm. very much um you use the word noah i think what is that? <clears throat> NOAA is a federal agency called the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and it's part of the Department of Commerce. And so NOAA is um, sort of looks out for a lot of trust species and works on oysters and kelp and fish, many different salmon populations, some of which are listed or on the endangered species list, rockfish. Um, there's a rockfish recovery plan as well. So um, there are a lot of fish populations, salmon populations that are not doing well. And so one of the things, as Troy mentioned, so one of the things that we're trying to do is sort of rebuild that marine architecture on which 
salmon and other fish populations depend. Make sure that in near those salmon-bearing streams, when out-migrating juveniles are coming out of those streams and hitting the marine system, make sure that there are structured native oyster beds where there's lots of food that can be found so they can fatten up before they continue on their ocean, their journey out to the ocean. Just make sure that there's that good structured habitat and that food web support for salmon populations as they move through the system. When I first came to Bainbridge, um, the oyster and clam population was huge. Like you could just walk on the beach and shuck oysters all day. And now it, it's very hard to find a, a non-toxic site to clam or oyster on. And the, the manila clams are just not as prevalent, but the oysters seem to be making a strong comeback. And I was wondering if that is based on, you know, clams, we don't leave the shells on the beach necessarily. And the oyster shells, we do. So then the next oyster has a habitat. Um, can that lead to more production of the oysters versus the clams? Well, oyster shell is actually something that we use in our native oyster restoration projects because the bigger Pacific oyster shell it provides a good settlement substrate for the larvae to settle out of the water column and attach to something hard, structured. Um, so in places like Liberty Bay, um, in Dyes Inlet, Sinclair Inlet, we're spreading shell as a base layer to provide that base habitat for native oyster larvae. Um, Around Bainbridge Island, there are a lot of, I mean, there's so many different shellfish species around Bainbridge Island. I think that there are about 15 different varieties um, that I've counted over the years. And there are lots of places where butter clam populations are doing really well, um, where you can still find little necks. Uh, but then places where, you know, there have been ebbs and flows of those particular species. Um, there are places on Bainbridge where you can find Olympia oysters, um, Fletcher Bay, Port Madison, um, a small number in Blakely Harbor. Um, I don't think I've seen any in Eagle Harbor, but how's the razor clam and <clears throat> gooey duck? Um, how are they managing? Are they doing all right or not? I, I know razor clams are kind of spot specific, um, but gooey ducks you can kind of find anywhere. Um, how are those populations thriving or demising? The, the razor clams are only on the outer coast, so that's the place where people go to dig for razor clams. And sometimes, like, like Troy was mentioning about the shrimping, sometimes it's a very, a very small opening, a limited opening, and they've got to watch for natural biotoxin blooms in the water like domoic acid. Um, so there are times when you can't harvest um, razor yeah. clams. It's a lot of algae blooms. <clears throat> a lot recently. of algae blooms. Yep. And those algae blooms, you know, might be, um, you know, they they might be affected by warming temperatures. You know, warming temperatures might fuel more algae blooms. You know, there are a lot of nutrients coming into the water. Um, ocean acidification might also lead to more intense algae blooms. So there are a lot of things that affect our ability to harvest species um, that we've been connected to for a long time. Does the heat of the water um, exasperate the bloom. Like it, it seems like summertime is when the algae bloom really exactly hit. because hit. you've got sunshine and you've got nutrients, and that combination, of course, is fueling growth. 
just like you're getting a lot of veggies and, and, and green stuff growing in terrestrial systems as well. That's when you're getting that, that good photosynthetic growth. Troy, you ever spend any time at Hiram Locks in Ballard? I have not. No. I used to go, like every year, my dad took me to the locks, and that's the fish ladder for upcoming salmon and spawning salmon. And when I was a kid, the salmon in there were 60, 100-pound just beasts mm. coming up there. Of course, I'm 56, so it's, <laughs> it's a long time ago. But uh, I've been back to the locks numerous times, and I'm hoping that I could share that same experience with my son, but it just doesn't happen. It, the amount of fish is r- way down. The size of the fish are way down. I was wondering, when you do your charters, what, what is the average size of a salmon nowadays? Well, so in the summer we have um, – <clears throat> excuse me we have um uh, we have uh, different runs of fish we have f- four runs uh strong runs anyhow i know there's some sockeye that go into lake washington still and but uh the, the main sport fish uh, out here for salmon are coho and um chinook, chinook yeah. um and both of those are both of those are in decline um what are the pinks called uh, pinks, yes, yeah, all the above, pinks and humpies, and um, and they're an odd year run fish. So this year we'll see pinks come back. I definitely had some exciting uh, fishing trips with those. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah pinks are pinks are good for uh, putting smiles on people's face. Yeah, uh, there's still seems to be quite a few um, pink salmon around, but you get coho. We get, we have. Uh, and everything too. It seems like we have spring chinook, we have fall chinook, coho come in the fall, just mainly in uh, late August, September. Um, pinks will be around in the summer. Uh, also, we have uh, chum salmon and mm-hmm. um, or dogfish, dog salmon. Um, but those right now are two. I think it's the summer run. I think it's the summer run chum, which are late fall really. Um, those are in decline as well. So our our seasons as a uh, sport fisherman, um, they're they're narrow nowadays, and so I would say you know the average size fish you're looking at twenty pound chinook or ish in that range, and coho anywhere around ten pounds. Um, one of the gals that she works at one of the restaurants on the island here. Um, I remember a long time ago when I first moved here as well. I, she had caught an 18 pound coho. And at the time it was like just huge, uh, still would be huge today. But, uh, we saw coho back when I first got here that were really, really beefy shouldery fish. And, you know, to, to try to figure out because I'm sure it's layered, um, beyond, uh, Puget sound in you know, our streams and, you know, urban growth and development and lack of, habitat for for spawning fish and that kind of stuff uh being some of the culprits but uh yeah things things have definitely gotten smaller fish fish wise definitely gotten smaller and more uh sparse yeah more sparse Mm. can i ask troy a question absolutely betsy so there was this really big um herring spawn back in 2020 on the north end of the island and then another really big herring spawn 
many places around the island in 2022. And I'm wondering if that, um, if there's any indication that that has improved salmon populations locally. Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure when they do spawn, when the herring spawn. Um, <clears throat> because that would have to be, you know, if they were fishing around, I'm sure they would eat them. Um, but I'm not sure when the herring spawn. It's it's early to mid-March around here, our so, particular herring population. That's 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 kind of what I thought. I was in Ketchikan myself not long ago, and there was uh, so many herring spawning. The water was just milky. It was just incredible. Mm. Um, but uh, at that particular time, there's really no salmon in Puget Sound. So uh, resident salmon, I should say. There's, there are resident salmon around, but not the big push of fish that you'd see in, like June through September. So I'm not sure that's beneficial. Well, it's good. It's great to to hear you say that and know that they're they're out there and kind of coming back. When's your next trip? Um, actually, Tim, I go out to the Olympic Peninsula for uh, the spring, uh, February, uh, February and March. Uh, I do um, drift boat trips down the rivers for uh, steelhead. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, oh, another you know. Um, Another cause for the wild steelhead, we, we, we get shut down. Mm, last year we got shut down a month early, uh, um, which was tough on bookings. Um, and there's a whole other ball of wax there that uh, I won't get into. But uh, Yeah, wasn't uh, there a crab shut down as well this last year? There, there was. Um, we, had, we had a really slow year the last couple of years crabbing this year was i thought was pretty good um but um yeah commercially there was uh, some shutdowns um and uh, just tougher conditions um most people i talked to didn't do real well crabbing this year um but uh yeah it's interesting it's interesting because we, we we balance everything at least in my line of work i balance everything with the local uh the native tribes here um there's a there's a uh, uh, i think it was judge bolt in 1972 and we decided you know everybody gets half of half of this and half that is what was fair um commercially speaking now now there's times where i can't fish in puget sound but yet uh you know the fleets are out, so it's right. it's tough to it's tough sometimes to uh, get your head wrapped around what's well, going you, you on. You get seconds. Well, if we get a chance to get seconds, right. you know, sometimes we just uh, don't even get a chance to go to the table. We just we just kind of stand back and watch. But uh, have you guys seen less fishing by the tribes recently? Because I, I feel like there, there's not a bunch of boats that you're running into on the water anymore. Well, a lot of that were commercial fishermen as well, beyond the tribes too, and and most of those people don't commercial fish here anymore because it's really not that much. I know out there on the Piot River, um, the tribe net fishes the salmon coming up there to spawn, mm-hmm. and it's kind of brutal because mm-hmm. the river's not that wide, and it takes a quick couple minutes to diminish a long journey for fish. Yeah, yeah, we. You know, I run into that again out on the peninsula. 
Uh, one of my favorite rivers to fly fish is the Ho, um, and beautiful system. Uh, a small tribe at the mouth of the Ho um, still net the river with jet boats and big nets across the river. And we were told last year that we couldn't fish anymore starting March 1st. The season was over, which historically runs through the end of March. Um, and we're fishing a single barbless hook. You can't take the fish out of the water after you catch one. And um, so we all kind of just said, oh. But the tribe got to fish until April 15th. They got to net the whole river. So I scratched my head over certain things like that where it's like, wow, there's nothing. There's not that much left. And uh, the only way I see it is that they're either going to get subsidized by the government if the last fish is caught. And until that point, they're exercising uh, their right to kill the, the gold, golden the, goose over and over. Well, yeah, they're the historical right, the historical right, and yeah. and you the know access to access fish and seafood that have fed their people for thousands of years. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I'm, yeah. and I'm happy that they can continue to yeah. to access those resources. I know? am as well, as long as the po- population doesn't suffer. That they're they're they and we and everyone conducts themselves in a way to continue to have this habit and habitat and not cause extinction of certain species that, you know, are vital to marine life. Yeah. Which is why we're focused on trying to rebuild that habitat and also get more information. Like we were talking about Dungeness crab before, and um, we actually just uh, last year integrated a, a research program that is out there doing larval crab monitoring at eight di- 18 different places around Puget Sound so we can get better information about larval crab and their abundance um, and therefore um, develop better management systems um, and, and hopefully be able to predict better what the Dungeness crab population will be in a particular year based on that larval crab monitoring. Right. Um, that's, that's, it. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Tough question here. I want both of your opinions. How do we feel about farmed salmon? Betsy, I'll let you go first. I think that there um, are places in Puget I think that, that, first of all, aquaculture, farmed salmon is a tool that some tribes um, are, are counting on to, to ensure access to seafood for seven generations out. Um, I think that there are um, maybe some farm salmon operations that haven't been done well, um, but there have been a lot of improvements in in um, fa- in farm in salmon farming in terms of the types of feed, um, and in terms of siting, in terms of maintenance. I think that um, globally we need seafood, and um, it's healthy. It's a healthy food, and I think that well run well-run managed salmon farming operations could help to provide affordable, healthy seafood. Um, but it's got to be done right. It's got to be done in the right places. And so I think that it's part of a glo- global seafood supply. Um, that, heard- and, and, and it means that, you know, if we're growing them in a farm setting, 
um, then we're not depleting wild populations. And the truth is, you know, based on, you know, hearing what Troy had to say about fishing, wild populations are in decline, many of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we need to be having some, we need to figure out how to provide seafood in a sustainable way. And farm salmon might be part of that sustainable suite of of activities. Yeah, I heard that about ninety percent of the restaurant salmon is farm salmon now. Um, you got an alternative opinion or mm. more opinion to share? You know, I, I for me, uh, so my my biggest fear with farm salmon um, is uh, is escapement. And then, which has happened? Here. Yeah, it's happened. It's happened all over Puget Sound. Um, but escapement of uh, of uh, non um, native species of fish. In other words, what they grow in most of the aquaculture farms for salmon are um, Atlantic salmon. They're a little more disease resistant, and they grow a little bit quicker. Um, but we don't have Atlantic salmon in the Pacific Northwest now. Uh, 20 years or so ago, I caught, I caught perfect examples of Atlantic salmon. Uh, I caught them in the lower Elwha before the dam was taken out, and I was actually fishing for Chinook. And this is kind of a, a funny story. I, I got a ticket for uh, – I caught an Atlantic salmon, and I identified it as such, and I killed it and uh, just, just to get it out of the system. And there was a whole school of them. And they looked like they were spawning or they're staging too. Anyhow, a uh, fishing game cop came down, officer came down, wrote me a ticket for a, killing a Chinook. And he didn't, wasn't able to identify the fish as a, an Atlantic salmon. He took the fish. Um, and then um, when he, I got a letter that said, yeah, it was an Atlantic salmon. And, uh, and then I, then I went over to the university of Washington and, and uh, testified uh, that I'd caught an Atlantic salmon in fresh water, and I told them the same story I'm telling you guys, and and uh, so it was the first time that <clears throat> that 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 I saw firsthand escaped fish that were look like they were trying to spawn. Whether they were, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be uh, sterile when when they're in their pens, and and I believe they reach that that way uh, as like fry or a really small in the small stage of the uh, maybe like an elven or something when they still have the egg sac attached to them, they heat them up and they sterilize the fish. I think that's one of the ways they try to keep that from happening, right? From them to escape and go spawn somewhere and start to diminish our wild fish populations. So my, my biggest, Mm. my biggest fear is that, uh, that happens, and they they go out and and make their way or find their way. Even, uh, however, we're sort of like Jurassic Park. Right? And he said, you know, if there's a there's a way, they'll find it. Um, so I think aquaculture would be fantastic, and and the whole kelp thing right now. And I don't think it's bull kelp that they're growing. It's sugar kelp mostly. Sugar kelp, yeah. Um, but if they just did it with with our with our. Uh, if they did it with our native species, if they uh, put coho in a in a in a fish farm, uh, aquaculture farm, and you know, honestly, I think in Rich No Aga Pass, I believe just south of the bridge, there is an aquaculture farm out there. There's net mm-hmm. pens. I also I, feel like 
Governor Jay Inslee has now outlawed those pins. Is I think correct? it was Commissioner of Public Lands Hillary Franz, and oh, and it Island was resident. it was the um, the Cook Aquaculture pens, um, but the one that you're talking about, Troy, is I believe it's a late release um, small net pen system that is run by the Suquamish Tribe. It is um, in Agate Pass, yeah, and it's also uh, and coho. it's native, yeah, it's yeah. coho, oh. native so it's fish. native fish, yeah, and I'm all for that. Yeah. I think I think that's a fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, me too. Fantastic operation, and, and that's my that's my only complaint. I think I think they just need to use uh, the fish that are native to the Northwest and the Pacific Northwest salmon. Yeah, I think my chief complaint is taste. Doesn't taste the same to me at all. At all. Well, uh, have you had Atlantic salmon before? Yes. Okay. I don't care for it. it, it yeah, it's um, it's not as rich. It's not as rich. Um, Especially the farmed ones, I think they grow a little quicker, and you know they don't get a chance to swim around. And that might be the same analogy as a caged chicken versus the ones that get to run around your garden eat grasshoppers. They maybe taste a little bit better, lay better tasting eggs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I think that uh, it's mainly mainly just using the right the right species in the right area, because then you know who would really complain if a bunch of chinook got out of a pen right darn it yet <laughs> i got a whole bunch of fish out there um betsy tell me about a, these uh, few events that you hold as i believe fundraisers for the restoration fund um the seed sale what is that the seed sale is one that we do usually every june and we're selling shellfish seed mostly oyster seed, but also manila clam seed, sometimes mussel seed, to people who grow it in their shellfish gardens around around Bainbridge Island. So it's totally legal to have shellfish uh, gardens outside on your beach? It is, and we work with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife in the city of Bainbridge Island, and we have sort of a blanket um, permit for those shellfish gardens. Tell me about the Oyster New Year. Oyster New Year is this incredible sort of all-you-can-eat oyster extravaganza that's hosted by Elliot's Oyster House, and it's usually in early November. And um, there have been years when there have been like 36,000 oysters consumed by 1,200 people in a night. So lots of the growers are there shucking their oysters from Hood Canal and South Sound and and um, Central Sound and all over. And that's paired with wines and it's just a great oyster celebration sort of the beginning of the season when waters are getting cold and the meats the oyster meats are really fat and kind of perfect we need to go oh I, I, i've gone I, <laughs> I, I went for about 10 years no, i mean uh, we got to get out of here right now oh, yeah, some oysters. Yeah, right. the way you were describing that right that a drool off my chin here <laughs> that's a really fun event yeah uh, and lots that, of other seafood too oh, just yeah. piles of crab and yeah. salmon and yeah, if you need an MC, so I'm there. Okay. <laughs> um, the one that I've gone to is Whiskeys for Wildlife. Um, it's kind of self-explanatory. Um, it's kind of a, 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 I don't want to crap on it, but kind of a bougie rich um, endeavor, you know, like. Um, but the thing is, it's such a great event organized by Keith Barnes at Bainbridge Organic Distillers. And he 
is, you know, he does it as Great a distillery. fundraiser for yeah. Puget Sound Restoration Fund. So ticket sales go towards supporting all of our restoration mm-hmm. projects. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. I remember I had the wrong day for it one year and I was just beating myself over the head because it's so good. And then the the sauces that they make to go with the oysters is so good. Yeah. And that's a top-notch distillery as well. And the oysters that we serve at that event are grown on Bainbridge Island at our community yeah. shellfish farm on the Bloedel Reserve Tidelands. Um, is there two oyster farms on the island? I know there's one like for profit and then yours. I only know of the one ours. I don't know if there's another for-profit one. There's, there's. I think there is. Okay. I think there's a delivery service too, where you can order two dozen a week or whatever. And, drop and that I think that that we had at one time we had a, a CSA, an oyster CSA, where we could we now were we're harvesting. Talking. Two dozen um, a month is what we would do during the summer months. Um, but there's been a lot of oyster mortality um, during the summer. Mm. Um, and so we're trying to sort of get our inventory back up so that we can do that again. Shout out to Hama Hama. But um, can you tell sure. me why Hood Canal is so such a prevalent place for oysters? They seem to do really, really well out there. Yeah, unbelievable. And in maybe some of, I mean, they've got huge freshwater inputs, lots of nutrients. They've also got deep water, so good mixing. They just have a lot of things going on right in Hood Canal. Huge um, oysters. And, and also temperatures that get warm enough to support the, the Pacific oyster spawn. So lots of natural Pacific oysters settling on beach. And you need temperatures that reach a certain point in order for that happen to happen. Quill scene seems like a good place for um, oysters as well. For sure. That's like, you know, oyster land, oyster I think, country. I think that's the Taylor Fish, uh, Taylor Shellfish Company is in Quill scene. Yep. Taylor Shellfish has its hatchery there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah. It's just Taylor Shellfish is great. I've known about them since 1985. Been big fans of Raul and uh, his family and, and what they do. And uh, they have a few restaurants of their own now. They used to just provide oysters for everybody. Got so popular, they have one of the better seafood restaurants in all of Seattle. Um, let's get to a couple of negative things here. Okay. Um, if you could just help me out, I feel like we, as humans, we started the podcast talking about the ferry and and the gas that gets dumped in the bay there. I was wondering, how do we um, come back from faulty sewage um, that leaks into our Puget Sound. I I know one time that there was some news claimed that there was methamphetamines in almost every fish caught in Puget Sound because of such a crappy way that we pollute our own sound, you know, and there's a lot that gets dumped into the ocean, you know, whether it be garbage, but specifically out here, in the Pacific Northwest, we've had some pretty substantial sewage leaks that go straight into the water. And Bainbridge Island also has the runoff from all the roads, so all the oil and gas go into the Puget Sound as well. I was like, what do you see solutions for those situations? Like the Superfund is deemed one of the best super funds in all of America, and it's been going for 30 years. If it's so super, like, let's fix it. Why is it not done by now? Um, the sewage plant got award for the 
one of the best made sewage plants in all of America, and then it broke. You know, um, what as humans can we do to to stop some of this stuff? We need to make sure make sure that we are treating sewage discharge, treating it before it's released into Puget Sound. We need to make sure that we're keeping Puget Sound clean and keeping untreated sewage out of Puget Sound, which means funding maintenance of our sewage treatment plants, making sure that we're um, we've got the right standards for that discharge, and kind of improving our game as we move along because there are more and more of us humans here. And so those systems that help us maintain the health of Puget Sound need to be upgraded, and uh, and we need to do our part to make sure that these receiving waters, which are our food source and have been the food source for people here for thousands of years, that those receiving waters can continue to sustain many species, including humans. Yeah, it's tough to be a good steward and then see like government agencies drag their feet on improvements or make mistakes. You know, while I'm out there picking up the styrofoam, the plastic and stuff like that on the beach and um, doing my best, I'm just one person. But when a huge organization lets you down, it's difficult to take because um, this is my environment. This is my food source. This is where I live. Um, I'm strong pescatarian, basically. Uh, that's how I eat. Um, but yeah. we need to make sure that as ratepayers, we're willing to, you know, pay the price to to maintain those systems in good condition too. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like those people that let us down in those situations should be fine too. But they're already lacking funds in the first place to do what's necessary to maintain and clean up the wa- the waters around here. Um, that's, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point, but I know it's a fact uh, a year or so ago. I, I read a story on, um, I think they said every single sewage system in Puget Sound at one time or another, and some of them are multiple um, offenders have failed. And dumped, it's unbelievable, millions of gallons of raw sewage into Puget Sound. Um, But I was shocked that they said, like, every single one of them have failed. Every one of them, you know, for various reasons. But, uh, wow, I mean, that's just, uh, that's hard to to believe. But they really... Maybe if there was one place we should really take a good look at between that and runoff uh, out of urban areas, but the sewer systems have failed so much. And the one on Bainbridge Island has failed, I don't even know how many times since I've lived here, at least a half a dozen times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's depressing. Yeah. And to have it held up as such a high standard Mm -hmm. of sewage plants, you know, it's kind of a slap in the face. I don't mean to be super negative about it. I know everybody's trying, but uh, it's difficult to take at times, for sure. Um, Betsy, I see your mind twirling. But it's but it's also true that there are a lot of dispersed sources of pollution. You know, not it's not just from sewage treatment plants, Mm, but dispersed mm -hmm. sources that all of us can probably do a better job Mm -hmm. of managing. Um, to make sure that we're doing our part to keep pollution and excess nutrients out of Puget right. Sound. But it's much easier to be a single steward than a 
uh, organization that dumps gallons upon gallons. That's why it, it, it hurts a bit more in my mind. Um, anyway, let's not go down that road any further. <laughs> what, what kind of budget does the, the fund have to, uh, what's your operating budget for a year and how do you spend that money? Our operating budget for 2023 is about $2 million. And Whoa, I would have thought it was a lot more. Yeah, it's 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 not, and we maintain um, a staff of incredible scientists. We run a conservation hatchery at Manchester at NOAA's Manchester Research Station, so just across Rich Passage from Bainbridge Island, and that's where we're growing um, abalone, oysters, kelp for outplant in different places. Um, so we're, we're a lot of our, a lot of our funding goes towards maintaining the staff, but we're also doing a big 15, 20 acre project, oyster project in Dyes Inlet. And so we've got, you know, a big budget associated with that because we've got, we're going to be shelling, excuse me, spreading a bunch of shell on tidelands. And so, you know, contracting with barges and, and tugs to spread that shell material. So, um, we have boat. We need to, to, you know, fund boat operations because we've got scientific, scientific divers that are going out and outplanting abalone or kelp, and they need to monitor those places. So, you know, the funding goes towards a lot of different things. But work on the water, work in a hatchery, year-round hatchery, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's expensive. You do anything out in Gorst? In Gorst, we did a great project in Sinclair Inlet in, I think it was 2020, and it was a 15-acre Olympia oyster restoration project there. Very cool. Um, Ideally, what would you want to have as your operating budget? I'm trying. I need. I want people to get out here and, yeah. and support what you're doing. I think it's a great cause. I think that that um, to operate at the level that we need to with our existing programs, I think it would be better to be two and a half to three million dollars a year. You shouldn't shooting low. <laughs> let's, so. let's make an impact. So. I mean, you're talking about the money I want for this podcast. Yeah, not, we can go big. The ocean. We could go big in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, you kind of have in offering internships. Can you tell me a little bit about your intern program? We've had some really wonderful interns over the years, and some of them have worked at our hatchery. So learning how to produce and propagate all those species and then help to outplant them in places. We've had people, um, interns um, for field work. We have um, a veteran's. Um, intern who works with us every year for a six-month period, and we may be getting two veterans, um, veteran interns in the next year. We've got Washington Conservation Corps interns that work with us for a year, mm-hmm. and they sort of learn cool. everything, everything you'd ever want to know about running a hatchery and get that good hands-on experience. And is it mostly college kids that are your interns, or do you uh, accept lower? level like high school kids there's summer you know, projects and stuff college mostly college kids and up people who have graduated also people who have served in the military people who have already gone through college and they're looking to figure out what they want to do in the world and and they want to they want to do something involving natural resources so it's a real combination we also hope to be getting tribal interns working with us on on different species efforts kelp cockles 
other species. What's a cockle? A cockle is another bivalve, kind of like a clam, only it's bigger and it's got big ridges. And um, you can see cockles more on the surface. They don't dig in quite as deep. And um, They kind of look like a scallop shell? They look a bit, but, but, but fatter, rounder. And are those good eating? They are good eating. I'm so hungry. We're going to have yeah, to stop Yeah, it's this. almost lunchtime here. <laughs> um, Troy, give a shout out to your website and tell people what you got coming up and uh, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, it's grandrondangler.com. Uh, that's Instagram, Facebook, website. It's all the same. And uh, my next uh, big thing is steelhead fishing out on the peninsula. Uh, Olympic Peninsula out of Forks, Washington, uh, taking the drift boat down and two people a day. And I'll do that for about two months and then the trout season on the dry side of the state after that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And Betsy, the restoration fund, how do we get involved in that? Well, here's what we've got going right now. We're producing oyster seed for Samish Bay and also Squaxin Island right now in the hatchery. We're propagating bull kelp seed for outplant off Point Jefferson and also off Squaxin Island, and that'll go into the water um, in the end of February. And we're also um, rearing abalone that will be outplanted up in the San Juans in probably May of this year at various restoration sites. So we've got a lot happening at this time of year. You got a cool ass job, I must For say. For sure. Mm, yep. And that's Puget Sound Restoration Fund.org if you would like to learn more about what Betsy and the crew are doing out there. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Bystander today. You can support this show for as little as $5 a month on Patreon. I appreciate you tuning in. Troy, thank you so much for coming in. And, thank you, Tim. Uh, can't wait to go on a trip with you soon. Yeah. Um, Betsy, you're a plethora of information, and I hope to be able to call on you anytime for more questions just as a steward of the marine life. You bet. Thank you, Tim. All right. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind.